Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Degish America Presents. As always, I am your host, Ben Harl, and I'm so glad that you joined us. Okay, so this far this season, we've covered the history of fumigation, what stored product pests we're trying to control, and why we're fumigating in the first place, the most common fumigants used and sold in the United States, and how to transport those fumigants. We only have a couple of more topics to talk about before we call this season one a wrap. In the last episode, we went over the sometimes complicated topic of transporting fumigants. In this episode, we're going to talk about where we're transporting them to and from. Okay, do you know who regulates the storage of fumigants? Do you know what type of minimum signage is required to store fumigants? Do you know where your safety data sheets are located inside your facility and just why they're so important? To help answer these questions and more, we've invited Dennis Ryman to join us today. Dennis is the technical director at Degish America, and he's responsible for our safety and operations management at our Weir's Cave, Virginia facility. He has extensive knowledge on what it takes to store fumigants safely. I've known Dennis for several years, and I can't think of a better person to talk to about how to navigate the proper storage of fumigants. So please help me welcome Dennis to the podcast. Dennis, thanks a lot for agreeing to uh, be on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome, Ben, and thanks for having me. Oh, no problem. All right, so I want to just start out by asking you to just kind of tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into the industry, what you do, who you work for, that kind of stuff. Sure. I've been with Degish. This makes 25 years. Oh, 25. Uh, this year. <laughs> and I started, they hired me to work in the laboratory, and I was responsible for all the quality control work. We analyzed the product coming into the plant. We analyzed the raw materials, etc. And back then, we also did a lot of other studies, product studies, etc. From there, I worked under the then technical director, Don Shaheen, uh, who was well known in this industry. And he's basically uh, taught me pretty much everything I know about metal phosphides. So I served under him until he retired, and then I assumed the role of technical director. Not long after that, the plant manager that I also worked for uh, retired, and I am uh, now currently serving as plant manager and technical director. So that gives you a little bit of an idea of my progression through the organization. Sure, moving up the ranks, I like that. Moving up the <laughs> ranks, that's right. You gotta the, start somewhere. Yeah, one of the best ways to learn is to move through the ranks. That way you learn all the jobs along the way, exactly. right? Exactly. <laughs> all right, so I know that uh, we get a lot of questions from a lot of people in the industry when it comes to the storage of fumigants. I know it's been a, a really big hurdle for a lot of people because there's a lot of really specific restrictions and guidelines and rules and regulations when it comes to the storage of fumigants because it's a restricted use pesticide. That's the reason why I wanted to kind of bring this up and talk about it on this particular episode. Just kind of give people a little reassurance that it can be done. It's done pretty often. And as long as you just kind of follow the rules, there's not really a whole lot to it. Um, we'll just jump right in. And I think one of the biggest things that I get asked by people in the industry is, what's the difference between storing general use pesticides compared to storing fumigants such as metal phosphites? Well, uh, the general use pesticides, we don't actually store any here. So it's a little hard for me to speak in depth about that. Right. But, you know, you'll find statements on general use that you also find on ours. And 
you know, as with any pesticide, the, the statements do not contaminate water, food, or feed, store under lock and key, well-ventilated areas, you know, keep out of the reach of children. Those are common to both labels. So I'll leave the general storage at that. I will speak towards the storage of metal phosphides. Okay. Uh, we have a section in our applicator's manual that's dedicated to storage. And I'll just run down over those storage points. You know, once again, store dry in a well-ventilated area <laughs> away from heat and under lock and key. Okay. You'll want to post this as a pesticide storage. Do not store the metal phosphides in areas where temperatures may exceed 130 degrees Fahrenheit. Obviously, you don't want to contaminate food, water, or feed. You do not want to store in buildings where humans or domestic animals reside. Store where it's kept out of the reach of children. And the packaged metal phosphides are supplied in gas-tight pouches and in resealable metal pails. Once opened, these can't be resealed. So that's just something to keep in mind, you know, of how you handle your storage. And the shelf life is virtually unlimited as long as the containers remain sealed. So if you're going to store, you know, fumigants, obviously they're restricted use pesticide. They're extraordinarily deadly. Metal phosphides, you know, they, they can be extraordinarily deadly if they're not handled properly. So the personal protective equipment requirements for the use and then also the storage of metal phosphides and, and other fumigants is a lot more restrictive than maybe some of the, your general use pesticides. So with that being said, uh, if somebody's planning to store, say, metal phosphides, what's some of the personal protective equipment that they need to have on hand in case they may need it? I guess we could start with gas detection devices, devices specific for detecting phosphine sure. concentrations in the air. We routinely check our warehouse for any um, potential leaks from the packaging. And this is just done as a precaution. And then, you know, should you find a problem, you would need to have respiratory protection on hand. Uh, and this would include a full face canister mask that would allow you to be in an atmosphere of phosphine up to 15 parts per million. Or if you don't know the concentrations, or it's above 15 parts per million, you would need to have a self-contained breathing apparatus, or SCBA. Those two pieces of safety equipment are probably the most important. Right, I agree. And in accordance with our label, if you're handling or storing this material, you have to have that equipment. Yeah. It's not an option. Over the years, you know, I've given talks and tell folks that they need to have this stuff, and I'm often met with very peculiar looks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. What do you mean? But I, I just wanted to emphasize that those are must-have items. Right. I agree with that. Uh, is there anything else that you can think of that you may need? I'd recommend what OSHA would recommend in a warehouse setting. I mean, steel-toed shoes, gloves, uh, because you're handling heavy packages. I mean, that's what we use here. So. Sure, sure. I mean, if you're moving heavy amounts or large quantities, yeah. maybe some hand trucks, hand things trucks, like that. a fork yeah. truck, uh, depends on what you're, you know, how you're handling it. Right. Okay. Here's another question that I get asked a lot. So everybody that stores fumigants, we already know that, you know, we have to uh, use NFPA signage mm -hmm. to hang on, you know, put on the exterior of their facility to let any kind of emergency response personnel know what's being stored on the property. 
So I just wanted to ask you, because a lot of people don't really even know what the NFPA is. Can you kind of give us kind of a rundown on what the NFPA is and what those signage requirements mean and kind of what the signage requirements are for, let's say, metal phosphide fumigants? Okay, yeah, the NFPA is the National Fire Protection Association. And uh, anyone that's been around a chemical storage has seen their sign. You know, it's the what appears to be a diamond in the way that it's posted with the uh, different colors and mm -hmm. different numbers divided into four squares. The red section uh, deals with the flammability of the material. The yellow section deals with the instability or stability of the material that's stored. The blue section is an indication of the health hazards. And the white section is any special precautions. Each of these sections have a numerical value. The higher the number, the more severe the consequences. For example, in our case, the metal phosphides, the flammability, which is once again the red section, has a, a numerical value of four. And, and this is an indication that both metal phosphides, aluminum and magnesium, are flammable, especially if contacted with water or acids. The yellow section is an indication of the stability or instability of the chemical. For metal phosphides, the numerical value is two, which is defined by stable to most chemical reactions with the exception of hydrolysis or the reaction with moisture. The blue section for metal phosphides, which is once again uh, an indication of the health hazards, has a numerical value of four, and this can uh, be attributed to the release of a highly toxic phosphine gas should these materials come in contact with, once again, water or acids. And then the white section is, a, I always consider this a really important, not to take away from the others, but that's a special precautions. And in our particular panel there, it's a W with a line through it, which is an indication that this material is water reactive. And so, Ben, you can understand the importance of a firefighter knowing that. Oh yeah. If you responded to a storage that contained metal phosphides and it was on fire, the last thing you want to do is rush in with water. So, yeah. Um, and I think that's the reason why the signage is so important uh, when it comes to the storage of this type of material. Nobody wants an emergency response, but if you have an emergency response, the, the emergency response personnel really need to know how to respond. And I mean, firefighters is what we always think of when we initially think of emergency response personnel because usually that's you know kind of how it goes down. Like you said, we certainly don't want them breaking out a water hose and spraying a water hose on a fire that contains phosphine materials or aluminum or magnesium phosphide. But I also think about if somebody that was storing the product had an accidental leak and an EMT had to show up. Well, the EMT can also look at that signage even if it's not necessarily intended for them, they can look at that signage and they can know that they may or may not be stepping into an area where that's a concern. But it's also important for the people who store it to know what that signage means so they can warn people if they're going to come into the area that these are the kinds of things that are stored. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, this sign is for the general population. Is It's as important to them as it is to any emergency responders. Right. I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, everyone has to know what they're potentially walking into. And, you know, this stuff is so important. Transportation and storage of fumigants and restricted use pesticides, it's so important to understand what you're storing, why you're storing it, and reading the label in the SDS and knowing how you need to respond appropriately uh, when it comes to this. I mean, we have to have things like emergency response plans when we store fumigants and restricted use pesticides because the people who work there on a daily basis or people who visit that facility, they need to know how to respond to an emergency. 
So I did want to kind of ask you also, for those people who are listening to this podcast who don't know or have never stored fumigants, what is an emergency response plan and why is it important and kind of what needs to be included in that emergency response plan? Well, okay. So for instance, our emergency response plan, which by the way, we have put in the hands of our local emergency responders. That's always a great idea. The fire department and the rescue squad here in the town in which the plant is located in Winter's Cave. And that plan gives them a notion of how to deal with an emergency at this facility, what to expect on uh, what level would they uh, respond, and even at, that, at, at what point would they decide that it was uh, necessary to evacuate. I'm really glad that you said something about sharing the emergency response plan with people who may or may not have to respond to an emergency. That's really critical in my opinion. I think a lot of times people don't contact their local emergency response personnel often enough to discuss these things with them. But what we need to realize is these people may need to save somebody's life on that facility's property that's storing fumigants at some point. So the more information that you supply to them, the higher the chances are that if they have to respond to an emergency, that they know what they're getting into and that they can respond appropriately. And sometimes that's a life-saving difference. So I think it's really important to build a relationship with the emergency response personnel who you expect that are going to respond to a potential emergency and get to know them. You know, anytime that I've actually stored fumigants in my career, I've always uh, reached out and communicated with the emergency responders, invited them to the storage facility, asked them questions. Does this look good to you? What could I do to improve? What could I do to help you out in case you needed to respond to an emergency? I think a lot of times there's a gap there in communication and there shouldn't be in my opinion because we're all on the same team. And what I mean by that is we all have the same goal of going home safe at the end of the day them and us. We all have that same goal in mind. So we need to really communicate good and we need to build that relationship in order to make sure that we're all successful in that goal every single day. Well, yeah, and you made a point there that's really important. Having those folks visit the facility is worth more than I could possibly say. Having them walk through and understand the layout, understand where the storage actually is and where the offices are, Um, I did want to ask you a little bit more about the uh, emergency response plan, too. So it's my understanding that when you build an emergency response plan, you can't just write a plan and say, hey, here's how we're going to respond to this. You need to train the employees that are on site or are going to work on site in that plan. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you have to actually assign responsibility to particular people and then have kind of backups on those in case they're on vacation or whatever the case is. So the emergency response plan is just not just a plan that you throw in a book and you put on a shelf. You actually have to assign people responsibility. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And we do have those posted here in our facility with, uh, with you know guidelines of who is to do what in the event of a spill or a fire, and you know, uh, the emergency evacuation requires exit from the building. Someone has to be responsible for making sure everyone is out of the building. Right. Um, and this, you know, this goes back to simple little things. This is why we have a sign-in book at our main entrance because when people enter here, we have a lot of contractors in and out of here. You know, what if we had to have an emergency evacuation? 
without knowing who's in the building, you can't tell if they've evacuated the building. So there's, it's, there's little parts of this as, you know, they're, they're, they're nuanced plans that have to be pretty detailed. You know, like you said, uh, there are individuals with specific responsibilities. We, we if we would were to evacuate into, you know, we have a meeting place in our parking lot. We have a person responsible for bringing first aid. We have a person responsible for bringing the necessary safety equipment. Uh, that would be, you know, our uh, respiratory protection and any gas detection equipment that we need. We have people assigned to doing a head count. Now, another thing that we get asked a lot, and this is, we could go down a rabbit hole on this. We don't have to, but this is probably the most complex piece of phosphine storage that we deal with in our industry, and that has to do with DHSC fats storage requirements for phosphine in particular. So I just wanted to ask you, and you don't have to necessarily, I mean, we could spend hours probably just going over the CFATS guidelines alone, which we don't want to do, but I was hoping that you could uh, share with us kind of what CFATS is. I know it's an acronym, kind of what CFATS is, how DHS is involved in the storage of phosphine fumigants, why they're involved in it, and then just kind of how it pertains to the storage of phosphine. Uh, yeah, CFATS, as you mentioned, is an acronym, and what it stands for is Chemical Facility Anti-Terrorism Standards. It was developed by DHS uh, really back in about 2006 is when it all began, and the CFATS regulation can be found in the Code of Federal Regulations, and it applies to any facility from an individual to an establishment that possesses any chemical of interest, or COI, at or above the screening threshold quantities and concentrations listed in a table called Appendix A. And this Appendix A contains 300 plus different chemicals that are subject or considered chemicals of interest. Both metal phosphides and bottled phosphine gas are all listed in this Appendix A, therefore making them subject to this regulation. All right, so how in the world did metal phosphides and bottled phosphine even end up on the CFATS Appendix A? Well, that's a good question, and, and it's how uh, the Department of Homeland Security uh, views uh, specific threats from these chemicals. For example, aluminum and magnesium phosphide. DHS sees uh, the threat that they pose as a sabotage threat. So this material could be taken into the possession of someone who wishes to do harm and it could be used as a, a sabotage weapon, so to speak. So let's say that somebody is planning to store phosphine fumigants, uh, whether it's bottled phosphine or metal phosphides, both aluminum and magnesium phosphide. What are some of the first steps that they need to do in order to become compliant with the DHS CFATS? Okay, so as I had mentioned before, anyone that possesses a chemical of interest, such as the metal phosphides or uh, the bottled phosphine gas, there is a um, series of steps that need to be taken to set the whole CFATS process in motion. Okay. And that starts with you, once you know that you've come into possession, so what do you do? What are the steps? The first thing you need to do is complete the Chemical Terrorism Vulnerability Training, or CVI. And what this does is, once you've gone through this training, it's an online tool that allows you to complete this, you'll be assigned a CVI number. And this allows you to openly communicate with folks at the Department of Homeland Security. So if you have a question and you call in 
and you get the help desk for this process, the first thing they're gonna ask you is, do you have a CVI number? And you'll have to provide that in order for them to even move on. And they in turn will also provide you with their CVI number. Right. So this is a security measure that was designed by Homeland Security to make sure this whole process stays between people that it needs to be between. So the managers of a facility and the department itself, for example. Okay. And then after that, you need to register for chemical security assessment tool. All right. That's the online tool that allows you to start the assessment of the storage of these chemicals of interest. So correct me if I'm wrong, this online assessment, this is basically the initial steps for somebody who wants to store phosphate. They reach out and they start this assessment to basically supply information of what they're storing or what they're wanting to store. It gives the Department of Homeland Security information that they need to know whether or not this person's even capable of storing phosphate fumigants. Is that, is that a correct statement? Well, yeah, it's, it's a tool, it's an online tool that allows you to start the process after you've determined that you do need to start this process. And that's a simple matter of knowing that you have chemicals of interest above the thresholds and now that you need to complete the first step in this process. And that is actually submitting the first part of this assessment tool, which is the top screen. It's a screening process that allows the department an initial determination of how much of a risk your facility is. So once you go through this process, and it's, it's just a matter of answering questions through this tool that are fairly straightforward, the department will respond to you and you'll receive a tiering of one through four, okay? With the lowest number being the highest tier and four being the lowest tier, and that kind of gives you an idea of the risk that your facility poses. Right, so what you're saying is the lower number is a higher risk and right. the higher number is a lower risk. So tier one is the highest risk and tier four is the lowest risk. That's correct. Okay. So then the next step in this, if you find out that you're tiered, what you're gonna have to do is provide the next tool in this assessment tool, online toolbox, uh, and that is the Security Vulnerability Assessment, or the SVA. Once again, the name somewhat descriptive. You're making an assessment, or it allows them to make an assessment of how vulnerable is your facility. And it'll go into things of what the, the quantity of COI stored there, the security measures that you already have in place. Uh, your location plays a big factor. Are you in a metropolitan area? Are you in a rural setting? These are all things that go into this assessment that then, once they've reviewed this, the department's gonna come back to you and ask you to complete a site security plan. Or they're gonna ask you to complete an alternative site security plan. You have two options. The site security plan is an online option, and it's just a simple tool that you run through and say, we're gonna have this, 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 and this. Whereas the alternative security plan is your own site security plan which allows you to actually write a site security plan. So upon completion of the site security plan or alternative site security plan, you'll receive approval and notice for an authorization inspection. Yeah, and the inspection's key. They're gonna come out to your facility and inspect it to make sure that you are- Doing what you say in your site security plan. Yes. Doing, your, your plan has to match your actions. Yes. Um, I like that. Your plan has to match your actions. I love that statement. That's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> and then once they've determined that, they're going to either approve or disapprove your 
site security plan or alternative security plan. And then you're pretty much set up. You will implement that plan fully and you can expect to undergo regular compliance inspections after that. Right. Now, I do want to state this because I've been through some of the CFAT stuff myself with my career. And this is, sounds like a lot of extremely complicated stuff. And it is. And it needs to be because restricted use pesticides, I mean, they are, they're dangerous. So we have to make sure that we're complying. We want to make sure that we're doing everything the way that we need to be doing it. Uh, to keep people safe. The storage of these of metal phosphides and other restricted use pesticides and fumigants, I mean, it's you have to take it seriously. Now, with that being said, in my experience, once you get this set up, the front end work on this is pretty complex. There's a lot to it. But once you get set up, maintaining this with the Department of Homeland Security is actually pretty straightforward. You get uh, periodic inspections, and as long as you're maintaining your plan, your site security plan, it's pretty straightforward. I mean, would you agree with that? Is that a pretty correct statement? Oh, absolutely. It's, it's uh, yeah, at first, you know, when the process started, for me, it seemed overwhelming, but as you work through it, as it is with a lot of uh, regulatory yeah. compliance issues, you find that it's not nearly as burdensome as it uh, appears to be at first. So I, I would have to agree 100% with it. And the reason why I wanted to say this is just because I don't want to dissuade anybody from storing phosphine or any chemicals of interest or make them feel like that it's going to be a perpetual complication. Once you get this set up, it's very straightforward and it's business as usual. So don't let this discourage you from wanting to store these fumigants. It's just another step in the process. Anytime that you're fumigating with products or using these products, it is a complicated process. Getting a license to use them is complicated. Transporting them is complicated. Storing them is complicated at first. But once you get all of those things set up, the storage, the transportation, and the licensing for transportation and the licensing to be able to fumigate in the first place. Once you get all of that stuff set up, it's business as usual. It's pretty straightforward. Oh, absolutely. You make a very good point. DHS didn't conjure this up to make you fearful of storing these products, and we don't want to make you fearful. We've worked through the process. All the folks I know in the industry have worked through this process and have gotten through it. I couldn't agree more with, with Ben here in stating that it, we don't want to discourage anyone and have this be a factor that drives them away from, uh, from these chemicals. Right, because I mean, as long as you're following the rules, perfectly safe. And that's the key, follow the SDS, follow the labels, follow the manuals, as long as you're, you're doing that, you're gonna be able to store them perfectly safe. So are there any exemptions that allow for the storage of phosphine or metal phosphides without having to apply for CFATs? That's a good question, Ben. I'm glad you asked that. Yes, uh, there is an agricultural facility exemption. Uh, it came about in 2007, eh, about a year after the uh, regulation was established, because I think what the department discovered was that they had captured a bunch of agricultural facilities that they didn't want to have regulated. Uh, it states, if a facility possesses a chemical of interest, a top screen will not be required if the uh, chemical of interest is used in the preparation or during the application treatment of crops, feed, land, or livestock. Okay. Uh, and those are exact words from the uh, from the letter that was issued. And it applies to facilities. I can give you some examples. Farms, rangeland, uh, poultry, dairy, and horse farms, turf grass growers, golf courses, 
nurseries, uh, public and private parks. So you can see it's pretty far reaching. Yeah. And it distinguishes what, what that does is it also tells you in this letter what it does not include. And it does not include chemical distribution facilities or commercial chemical application services. So you see it sets out to distinguish what an agricultural facility is as defined by DHS as opposed to folks in our industry. Okay, well that's definitely good information to know that folks who are actually utilizing this, like say for example on their property, they don't necessarily have to apply for the CFATS, it's only the folks that are really manufacturing or distributing the product. Right, or, or, or you know, making application. It, it includes right, right, which is passing. Yeah, sorry, I left that out. <laughs> yeah. So let's say that you were just going to be storing this stuff for a short amount of time. You know, like maybe a week or two. Do you still need to apply for a CFATS if the storage of the phosphine or metal phosphides is temporary or short term? Well, uh, another good question that I'm glad you uh, brought up. I had been back and forth with DHS over the years because, you know, this regulation has been in, in effect since 2006. Oh, yeah. I'd asked this question in the past, and I just wanted to make sure nothing had changed. So I went back to the uh, folks at the uh, department's help desk and asked them via email about this temporary storage. And the answer I received back was, yes, a facility must file a top screen to report the chemicals of interest that they hold at above the screening threshold quantities, regardless of how long the facility is in possession of that chemical. So that's the way the regulation is written. And I think it's pretty clear that, you know, if you become in possession of a chemical of interest, you need to start the top screen process. Okay. Yeah, that's good to know. You know, I mean, I get that question uh, often myself, you know, hey, if I'm only storing this for a few days, do I really need to apply? And now we now we have a pretty definitive answer. It's good to know. Yes. Yes. And if I mean, you know, I want to add that if anybody has a question, uh, I know that I get asked questions from time to time. You do. Uh, other folks in our organization. But it, it's also very helpful to reach out to the folks at CFATS. They're always happy to help out, and I've always gotten very clear and precise answers from them. Well, that's good. That's good because it, it can get confusing. So knowing that we have that as a, you know, we have that resource is definitely uh, something that's uh, worthy of mentioning. Yes, absolutely. All right. So I won't keep you too much longer. I just, I had one more question for you. What advice would you give a new fumigator just starting out in the industry? It doesn't have to necessarily just pertain to storage, but you've been in the industry for 25 years. So what kind of advice would you give a fumigator uh, that's just starting out? The most important advice I would give a fumigator that's just starting out, and being technical director, I get a lot of questions over the years. I, I'm oftentimes the go-to guy with, hey, your product... Uh, we have some questions about it. We've had some technical issues. Can you help us, et cetera? And I found over the years that a lot of the answers I've given came from the applicator's manual. And I'm not kidding about that. I went directly to the applicator's manual, looked up whatever the issue was and said, well, here's my answer. And uh, I've even been met with, well, where'd you, where'd you find that? <laughs> Yeah. And so when I say the applicator's manual, it's oftentimes met with surprise. But the most important thing is, and I can't stress this enough, is to read and understand that document and all the other documents associated with our products. 
and that would be the container label and the SDS. That right there is the best starting point I could imagine, all right, because it's a wealth of knowledge in those documents. I get that answer a lot from people, that the most important thing is to read the labels and the manuals and the SDSs, and I could not agree more. Every bit of information that you need, or most of the information that you need that pertains to any particular product, that's where you're gonna find that information. Uh, so yes, I agree with you 100%. I think reading and understanding the label, the manual and the SDS is integral, especially for a new fumigator. But I do wanna also add this, and I think we talked about this when we talked with Bob Warren on a previous podcast as well. New fumigators need to read and understand the label, the manual, and the SDS, but I also want to encourage fumigators that have years of experience to go back and read them again. Oftentimes these labels are updated. There's new information that can be added or a refresher may be necessary in order to make sure that you're following the label uh, when you're performing fumigations, when you're storing fumigants, and then when you're transporting fumigants. So I encourage everybody, now you don't have to read the label every single day, but have it available, refer to it, read it, understand it. And the most important thing that I would suggest to folks, if you read the label and there's something in it that you do not understand, ask somebody that question. If you do not understand it, call somebody like Dennis here and ask him that question so he can help you understand it. Well, and that might have been the second bit of advice I'd give is, yeah, if you have questions, contact the manufacturer, contact the registrant and ask them. And uh, more than likely, they'll be able to provide you with solid answers. Well, Dennis, listen, I don't want to take any more of your time today. Thank you very much for agreeing to this. I really appreciate it. I know this is, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I think this is the very first time you've ever been on a podcast. So It is, it uh, is. Uh, thank you very much for uh, taking some time out of your busy schedule and uh, helping us understand the storage of fumigants a little bit better. You're welcome, Ben, and thank you. I want to thank Dennis for talking to us today about the storage of fumigants. I know fumigants can be dangerous, but when used, transported, and stored properly, they are a huge asset to the pest control industry. So my final bit of advice on handling, transporting, and storing fumigants is this. Take your time. Don't get in a hurry. Double and triple check your work, your transportation vehicle, and your storage areas. Listen, I know it's a hectic, fast-paced industry, but don't let that pressure push you into making a mistake. Fumigation should not be a race. It's a service we provide, and we want to make sure we're able to continue to provide that service safely for many years to come. Remember, we help keep our world's food supply safe. Okay, so we only have one more episode this season, but that final episode is going to be a doozy. Just when you thought we've talked about it all, we're going to finish off the season by talking about the future of fumigation. Because believe it or not, there are some extremely exciting changes coming to our industry. Everything from new products and equipment to new and innovative ways to use our existing products. You're not going to want to miss this episode. In the meantime, as always, if you have any questions about this episode's topic or any other questions relating to our industry, please make sure to reach out to us. You can find us at degishamerica.com or on all of the main social media outlets. And you can also feel free to email us at info at And so, until next time, I'm Ben Harl, and as always, I hope you have a safe and terrific day.